We are complicated individuals and we come at things from so many different perspectives. And, you know, we can share values that we express really differently. And we can also, I mean, there aren't that many things that humans want when you come right down to it. How we want to get them is infinite, but the basic needs are just relatively few and they are common. So to me, the idea of demonizing people because they have a different point of view is counterproductive to the larger goal of living together on this planet in something that resembles harmony rather than chaos. If you're a high achiever who wants your ambition to extend beyond your professional goals and into your well-being and relationships, you're in the right place. I'm Valerie Martin, a certified high-performance coach and therapist of 12 years, and I'm obsessed with teaching and coaching folks how to cultivate compassionate self-discipline. We all have a spark alive within us, no matter how small or dim it might feel right now. And it is our greatest purpose and our greatest responsibility to honor it. Because when we do, we become better partners, leaders, parents, creators, and family members in the interconnected web of this wild, dark, miraculous, beautiful world. Tune in every other week for a new interview or solo episode and connect with me on Instagram at honoryourspark. Let's jump into the episode. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This is the first intro that I have recorded since it is now officially Honor Your Spark. And I can't tell you how excited I am for this next chapter of my online work in coaching and programs and podcasting and all the things. Honor Your Spark just feels so right and the new website just launched. I am just so excited about everything. So I thank you so much for being along for the ride and really excited to see how the podcast continues to get even better with this next chapter. So let's jump into what I've been watching, reading, and loving because I still think it's a great segment. Hopefully you agree. (laughs) Recently, this past weekend, Chris and I watched E.T., and he had he had bought me the DVD Blu-ray for Valentine's Day. It's funny because I am I know that I saw E.T. as a kid, but I don't retain movies for more than like two years. So I know the iconic scenes, right? The bike riding across and E.T. dressed, you know, with the wig and everything and the Reese's Pieces, all of that stuff. And when we went to Universal, Universal Studios theme park in Florida last summer, we went on the ET ride and we went on it twice. It was the very last thing we did before the park closed. And we were the only ones on the ride. We were at the very front riding our little bikes. It was, I can't tell you how, how like touching and how much I loved it. And it made me fall in love with ET. So we've been talking about watching ET since then. And he just got me the the DVD. So we watched it over the weekend. And it's so fun when there happens to be a thing that we are both equally passionate about. And this is one of those we both loved it. I mean, he'd seen it a bunch of times growing up. So he knew it more intimately than me. But it, it it's just 
it's a classic for a reason. I immediately went online and bought myself the two things that I wanted to get from the Universal store, but we were too late when we went back (laughs) since the park was closing. So I got a little plush of E.T. and a shirt. So I ordered those for myself (laughs) because, you know, that's what you do when you're a grown woman. But seriously, if you haven't seen E.T. in a while, it is just so heartwarming. The themes are so deep. We watched some of the extras. We're still making our way through the extras and bonuses in the DVD because there's hours of them because this movie is so iconic. So anyway, that's all on E.T. Go watch it. You will thank me if it's been a while or you haven't seen it. I'm reading Iron Flame, which is the sequel to Fourth Wing. I can't remember how many books are going to be in it. Maybe five. I don't know. Four or five. Yeah, I won't say much about that. Just that I I did intend to wait. I was like, I'm going to read some more nonfiction before I read Iron Iron Flame. And then I was like, no, I can't wait, (laughs) which I think is pretty common for like a quote unquote addictive series like this. It's really fun. And I love getting sucked into a fiction book just because for me, that doesn't happen that often. So recommend the fourth wing series, whatever the series is called by Rebecca Yaros. And I am loving OMG, you guys, I just discovered this app yesterday. And I'm I mentioned it in my recent spark letter, which you should sign up for if you're not already. It's called gentler streak. I think it's only available for Apple on the iPhone, but it is a phenomenal fitness tracking app that is totally aligned with my sort of ethos of compassionate self-discipline. I just enjoy tracking that stuff because I'm a nerd because I like to see my workout history all in one place instead of like, oh, I did this on the Peloton and I did this thing over here and I did this thing over here. I like to see it all in one place. And I do like to watch my heart rate while I'm working out for various reasons, but Anyway, it is just so, the the layout, like no wonder this app has won multiple awards because it's beautiful, it's intuitive, it's just so much fun. I love this app. So check out Gentler Streak if you are on an iPhone. And okay, let me tell you about our incredible guest. I am already just like beaming inside about how much I cannot wait for you guys to hear this conversation. I recorded it a little while back and I'm just like sitting here remembering like, holy crap, this was such a good episode. So you are in for a treat with this one, truly. Her name is Omkari Williams. And let me just tell you about her. Omkari Williams has worked as a political consultant and life coach for 30 years with an emphasis on supporting activists who identify as introverted or highly sensitive. As a queer Black woman, she shares her own story of challenging injustice to empower others and making a difference in their communities and is the host of the podcast Stepping Into Truth, where she interviews activists from all walks of life. Omkari is also the author of the book, Microactivism, How You Can Make a Difference in the World Without a Bullhorn. She can be found online at omkariwilliams.com. That's O-M-K-A-R-I. And of course, all the links will be in the show notes. This book, I would say, is in my, like, if I had a list of 10 recommendations of books that I just handed to every human I encountered, this would 100% be on that list. So thank you, thank you, Omkari, for writing this book. And I hope this conversation gets it into more hands. You guys should definitely go pick up a copy. But for now, enjoy this conversation with Omkari Williams. 
Oh, Kari, I am so grateful to be sitting here talking with you today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Valerie. This is going to be fun. I know it. <laughs> I can already tell. Yes. So I always am starting with this question of what is something that you wish a past therapist, coach, mentor would have told you? I think the thing I most wish I had been told early on is that you're going to make mistakes mm. and that's fine. It's just don't let it stop you. Because I think there were times in my life where I let a mistake sort of put me in this state of paralysis and I got stuck. And everything, you know, especially when you're really young, everything feels so weighty. And then as you get older, you're like, I don't even know why I was worried about that. That was nothing. <laughs> you know? yes. So I, I think having more of that perspective on taking the long view and so consequently also just taking myself less seriously. Yeah. Although I don't really know how you tell someone, don't take yourself so seriously and expect them to hear that well. I'm not quite <laughs> sure how you deliver that message, but I think it's an important message. Yeah, I agree. And I think part of how I do that in my work is, is just bringing in levity, even to really you know, heavy topics. We have to find ways to do that. Otherwise, I think we we take everything, including ourselves, so seriously that, you know, paralysis and just, you know, we're walking around like raw nerves and, and raw yeah. nerves can't really take consistent action very well. Raw nerves can pretty much do nothing but hide and try and protect themselves. Yeah, absolutely. That is not the way to move through life. Mm. Well, I love I love the answer to that question. And I think that, you know, making mistakes in activism is one that I mean, I mean, even there's mistakes. And then there's also just like, wow, I don't know what to do. There's so much yes. I feel, you know, the paralysis is sort of the common denominator that I'm sure you hear from so many people. And, you know, when I think of what I wish my past sort of activist version of me would have known, it's this book, right? It's everything that you're saying and here because without these concepts and ways of thinking about activism, I mean, for the average person like me, I just, it just feels incredibly daunting and overwhelming. Well, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. I, you know, the impetus to writing the book was really to speak to people like you, like me when I was in my 20s, like so many people that I know, just normal people doing their lives and say, everything you do has an impact, but everything you do isn't weighty, right? It's like, everything is going to have an impact. That's just the nature of life. But it's not so weighty that you have to be completely consumed by it. I don't want people to feel like in order to make a difference in the world. And when I say the world, I can literally mean the 20 feet around you and your, you know, out in your apartment building or whatever. It doesn't have to be the entire planet. But I don't want people to feel like needing to make a difference becomes this obstacle between them and living the rest of their lives. I think activism should be a part of our lives. And I think it should be a part of our lives that we can do with joy 
And the way to do that is to not make it be the so important, which sounds contradictory because it is important, but there's a way of holding things that are important with a lightness mm. that I think is really necessary in this case. We have to hold our work lightly, even as we take it seriously and know that we are going to make mistakes. Things are going to definitely not always go our way. And we just get to keep going. We get to just keep moving forward and learn and laugh and cry and all of the things. This episode is brought to you by a private podcast from yours truly called You Are Motherfucking Enough. It's a four-part series that will teach you how to shift from patterns of self-doubt and criticism to owning your enoughness. I created You Are Motherfucking Enough because I'm tired of seeing how often self-doubt, shame, and constant criticism hold people back from stepping fully into their purpose, passion, and aliveness. And I believe that it takes a lot more than just an empathetic listener, whether that's a therapist, coach, or friend, to actually learn and apply the strategies that will allow you to make that positive shift long-term. I'm not kidding y'all, the value of these episodes is worth the cost of multiple therapy or coaching sessions, and you can get instant access to this series for $0. I've condensed 12 years of experience working with these issues into 60 minutes of content. You don't wanna miss this one. Get instant free access to listen, almost anywhere you get your podcasts, by signing up at honoryourspark.com slash enough. That link will also be in the show notes for the episode that you're currently listening to. All right, let's get back to the show. Absolutely. Yeah, especially with how long arc many of these movements are, right? That, oh gosh, we have to hold it lightly if we may only see small, tiny increments of progress during our lifetime. But if we didn't keep showing up for those, it's never going to happen. Exactly. I'm, you know, I like to think about the people who built the pyramids, mm. especially the people who laid the first stones. They were no way thinking, oh, one day I'm going to be sitting here with my kids and looking at this or like, that's never happening. They were laying their stone and having faith that the next person was going to lay the stones that they needed to lay and on and on until the project was finally completed. And I feel like that's how we need to hold our work in the world. And not only our activist work, but, you know, other work that we do as well. I mean, when even when you're talking about something like raising kids, you're basically placing stones and knowing that they will go on and do other things and other people will contribute to them and other people will have input and you are building a foundation and then someone else is going to do the next step. And wherever we are on that continuum matters, mm -hmm. but what matters most is not stopping. Yeah. Mm. So kind of the identity of being an activist, I, I think of this and with like James Clear's Atomic Habits, he talks so much about how a lot of times the only ways that, that we really install habits more kind of permanently is if they become a part of our identity, a part of how we see ourselves. And so part of what I love about this book is how you sort of define broadly, like who gets to be called an activist? 
and and really that it is the verb and not the noun. Like if you're showing up and taking 10 minute actions a few times a week over a long haul, you're an activist. So that really, to me, is encouraging of the more that we can encourage people to own their activist identity, the more that it becomes a part of them and the more likely they are to continue those actions. And one of the ways that you've done that in the book is by identifying what you call the the activist archetypes. So I'd love if you could tell people a little bit about those. Yeah, absolutely. Those came out of the realization I had that people really thought of activists in a pretty narrow sense, you know, they would think of the famous names that we all know, Dr. King, or Greta Thunberg, or Gloria Steinem, or, you know, those were the people whose names came up. And I thought, well, what about everybody else, right? And so I realized that there are different ways of being an activist, and they all are represented by these various archetypes, as I call them. So you have the headliner, and that's the famous people, the faces that we all know, the names we all know. But those are a really small percentage of the activist population, really small percentage. And then you have what I call the producers. And those are people who are, by their nature, really inclined to put projects together they look at the big picture, they say, oh, I, I see we need this, I see we need that, I see how to make this work, I see how to make that work. And they do that, and they are so good at it, and without them, everything would be kind of a chaotic jumble. Mm-hmm. Then you have the organizers, and they're the people who the producers would say, you know, we're putting together this event and we need food. So I'm going to put you in charge of the food. I'm going to put Mary over here in charge of the decorations. So the organizer is the person who takes one specific task and figures out how to make that particular thing happen in the context of the larger picture. And then there are the people who I call the indispensables. And I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but I kind of feel like the indispensables are my favorites (laughs) because without them, nothing happens. Mm. These are the people who staff the phone lines, who make sure that there's coffee in the break room, who make sure that there's toilet paper in the bathroom, who print out the maps for the march route, all of those things, the people way behind the scenes whose names you're never going to know, whose faces you're never going to see. But without them, nothing happens. So you need all four of those types of people for a successful movement. It's just essential. But if when you think about it, you realize that it's kind of, in a way, its own pyramid structure. You have the indispensables at the foundation, and then you have the organizers, and there are fewer of those, and you have the producers, and there are fewer of those. And then you have the headliners and they're at the smallest number of people because you don't need that many of them, but you need all those other people to make everything work. Yeah. Yes. Pyramid structure, not to be confused with pyramid scheme. (laughs) Not to be confused with pyramid scheme. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That is, that's so helpful because I imagine that there are people out there who are like, I want to do something, but I am very much not... I'm the furthest thing from a Greta Thunberg that I'll ever be. And so where's my role in this? And so, you know, finding ways that they can plug into their causes or cause of choice 
in the archetype that best fits them is going to be the probably the way of making it most sustainable. Totally is. I mean, if you don't have to fight against your own nature to do something, you're way more likely to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And if you actually can appreciate the value that your work brings to something, you're also way more likely to keep doing it. Because we all want to feel like we're making a contribution. We want to feel like our work is necessary and appreciated. And when you meet yourself in your work, because you've said, okay, who am I in the world? What can I contribute without making myself so uncomfortable that I never do this again? Then you're in a place where you can say, yeah, you know what? I can go into that office every Saturday for an hour and I can stuff envelopes or I can put labels on things or I can even clean up and make sure that it's a really nice environment for the people coming in during the week. It doesn't matter. It, what matters is that you find the way you can participate that makes sense for you, not for your best friend, not for your sister, for you. Mm -hmm. Right. So if, if the thought of going to a march with tens of thousands of people stresses you out, then you have permission to not go to the march. There's lots of other things that you can do. Absolutely. My oldest friend, I honestly think she would rather sit home with a sharp object in her eye than go to a march. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty yep. sure, you know, given those choices, she'd have to think about it really hard. <laughs> and that's fine. She does amazing work in her own way, in her own quiet, behind the scenes way that does not require her to leave her home. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for the work she does because it actually does make a difference. But you wouldn't know it if you didn't have a conversation with her about it. Yeah. Mm. So speaking of kind of finding our cause, some people might already feel like they have a really good sense of something they're very passionate about. For folks who are like, I don't know, I kind of care about a lot of things. You provide a lot of really good guidance and reflection questions in the book to help people identify really what they most stand for, where they really want to invest their time and energy so that they can be doing deep work instead of shallow work. And you talk about the importance of what you call the Noah's Ark rule. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So that's basically my rule of two, which is that you should confine your activist work to one or at most two areas. And the reason for that's really obvious. We just, you know, there's limited time, there's limited energy, there's limited resources of all kinds, and we just get burnt out. And if instead we say, okay, I'm going to focus on this one thing or these two things, we can do that. That we can do. And the success that we get from doing that breeds more success is the other piece of it. But when you think about choosing the things that you want to focus on. I always really encourage people to sort of go back and reflect on their sort of what I call their origin stories. Mm. And that to me is the story that propelled you to want to do any kind of activist work in the first place. And it can be from way back in your childhood, maybe you witnessed someone being bullied and you thought, well, when I'm bigger, I'm going to make sure that does not happen. Or it could be something more recent. It could be that 
one day you woke up and you read this article in the paper about climate change and you thought, holy moly, this is a real problem. I need to do what I can do to make it so that there is a sustainable planet going forward. So whatever this thing is that kind of propelled you into caring enough about something to actually work on it, that's the thing that I think you should put your attention on because going back to that story, when you're feeling tired or disillusioned or just, you know, we get to that point where we feel like, does this really matter when you get there? If you reconnect to that story, that will help you keep moving forward. That will help you stay in the work of activism when Netflix is calling. Yeah. Beautiful. And you also talk about radical realism, right? Of like, that's part of why the Noah's Ark rule, because we we have I mean, wonderful intentions. And if we're maybe a little ambitious with those intentions, that can lead us to just getting quickly burnt out and being like, activism is not for me. So I love how at one point in the book, you said something to the effect of like, all right, so at really ask yourself, like, what do you think you can realistically commit in terms of, you know, is it an hour a week? Is it, you know, 30 minutes twice a week, whatever it is, you know, that fits into your life. Now cut that number in half for most of you. You've probably overshot it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's just, it's so much about where you are in your life at any given point. I mean, this is my work. This is my full-time work. So I have this is what I do. Yeah. My brother has two kids who are three and one, and he has a full-time job and his wife has a full-time job and they don't have time right now for pretty much anything. By the time their kids are in bed, they are just dragging themselves. So this is not the time in their lives where they could take on any kind of big project. They just can't nor should they, they have other commitments, but they can do a tiny little thing here or a tiny little thing there and even bring their kids with them, right? So looking at where you are in life matters because in five years when their kids are both in school, they're gonna have a different life. Their time is gonna be a little bit more freed up. They'll be able to pay more attention in certain arenas than they are able to now. And that's that's totally fine. So, I mean, if you're in college and you have free time, that's one thing. But if you're in college and you are working two jobs to put yourself through school, you also don't have a lot of free time. So being realistic about what you can do, not just what you want to do, but what you can consistently do keeps you out of the pitfall of feeling like, well, I said I was going to do this and then I failed. Mm -hmm. We don't want to set ourselves up for failure. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think the best way to look at this is think, if it weren't me, if it were my best friend who had my life and they said, oh, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z, would we think, have you had some sort of brain injury? I mean, <laughs> You know, if we would think that that was ridiculous for someone else, then maybe it's ridiculous for us, right. you know, because it's so hard for us 
often to just assess our own circumstance and we're, but we can see it so clearly if we pretend it's somebody else. Sure. And, you know, just look at it and be compassionate and go, at this point, this is what I can do. And as your capacity grows, wonderful, do more. Mm-hmm. I talk a lot about compassionate self-discipline. And I think our for a lot of us, our self-discipline really has to include limits and boundaries. You know, like for instance, I'm just very passionate about my work. And so given no limits or boundaries, I'm gonna work myself into the ground. Some people might call that workaholism. I, you know, don't prefer that term because it it does feel life-giving. It's just too much of anything will burn you into the ground. And so giving yourself those limits and you talk about ways of maybe automating it, maybe finding, you know, a thing that sort of consistently fits into your life rhythm. If not that that's the only way of doing microactivism, but it's one way of sort of making sure you're, you're bringing those small doses in regularly. I, I thought of that because, you know, of course that same fire and passion develops for a lot of folks, especially when there's like big things happening in their, their cause one of my best friends has had sort of an awakening with animal rights based on a, a story that she saw and she she just went like head first and the timing was was well, almost perfect because she had a couple weeks of like am i ever going to be able to live my normal life again and i was like you need to read this book <laughs> because as as true as, as that is for for her in terms of how important, right? How urgent without the limits and boundaries, it's just not going to be something that you can carry forth in your life. No, it becomes completely unsustainable, which is the exact opposite of what we want. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to make an impact and we want to be able to make the most impact we can, but it's the most impact we can, not the most impact. Yeah. We need to be aware of that distinction and not get caught up in thinking that if our actions aren't huge, that they mean nothing. That's not true. I mean, something I I like to say is I like to remind people that in all of our lives, there's been some small thing that someone has done for us or to us that's either really elevated us and we've thought about it our whole lives, even though they probably have forgotten all about it, or really hurt us. And we've thought about it our whole lives, even though they've probably forgotten about it. So small actions can have enormous impact. It doesn't have to be this big thing. And if you hold it as thinking about the cumulative impact of doing something over and over, a kindness, a service over and over. There's no way to really measure that. And there's no way to really say that it doesn't matter because we know it does because we've experienced what a kindness or an unkindness does in our own lives. And so I think that when we hold microactivism as a way of extending kindness consistently, just even though it's tiny little bits of kindness, those do really matter. We all know that. Mm-hmm. There's a story you tell in the book about a, a time that you just, you know, gave money on the street to an, an unhoused person in Savannah, where you were at the time, and and just how 
how powerful that moment felt with the other person who also came into the equation. And so I'd love for you to share a little bit about that instance and why it was so impactful for you. And then I have a question about it. Okay. Well, it started because I read an article in the paper that day about written by a man and he referenced his wife who always gave money to anyone who asked and they weren't rich. These, they were working people and it wasn't like she'd give a ton of money, you know, it's a dollar, maybe $2. And I thought, Hmm, I'm going to try that and just see how it goes. And in Savannah, you know, especially it was the summer, you're always in your car because it's a thousand degrees. And I rarely encountered anyone asking for money. But sure enough, the way things go that day, I was driving to the store and I'm at one of the longest stoplights in the history of stoplights. <laughs> and there's this, this man by the side of the road with a sign and he's unhoused. He's probably a veteran. There are a lot of unhoused veterans in Savannah because of the military bases near there. And I thought, oh my gosh, here's my opportunity. And so I rolled down my window and I, I gave him a couple of dollars and the car in front of me, it was a truck and the man in the truck saw the exchange between me and this unhoused person. And he got out of his truck, went to the back of his truck, pulled out a bottle of water, gave the man a bottle of water and some money. And there was just this moment where the three of us just had this silent exchange mm. and it was so profound. And I, I thought I got permission to do this from the article I read and the man in the truck in front of me kind of got permission to do this from me and how this sort of permission structure of generosity just spread. And I, I'm never going to see those two people mm. again and I'm not going to forget them. It was really, it was such a beautiful moment. And it mm. it's really stuck with me all these years later. Yeah, that's so powerful. And just, you know, like you said, not only is it representative of the ripple effect that's at play all the time, but also just how in these small choices, these small moments where someone who maybe pretty rarely gets seen as an individual with with worth and dignity gets to have that experience and gets to be witnessed as someone as an individual. So it's powerful for all of those reasons. And here's where I think I sometimes and a lot of our culture gets stuck in like the black and white thinking around all of this is I read Peter Singer's book, The Life You Can Save, which is excellent. And he talks a lot about the effective altruism movement which I think is really incredible in its own way. Just how can we do the most good with every dollar, right? Mm -hmm. And so they've you know, rigorously evaluated different charities that are working with specific issues like for extreme poverty or medical issues and how you know a relatively low amount of dollars can do such incredible good when put into the right hands in the right place. And so that's true. And meanwhile, I'm like, 
you know, hearing things like that, I'm like, man, I want to give to every person I see who's on the street and asking. And yet, how can I reconcile both of these things? Like, shouldn't all that money be going over here where it can do, quote unquote, the most good, right? So I know there's no right or wrong answer, but I just think that it's a lot of us grapple with that. And then in the worst case, we end up just doing nothing because we can't decide what's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I do think that we sometimes sort of get in our own way and we sort of we stop ourselves from doing anything because, as you said, we can't decide what the best thing to do is. And I actually think that that's part of a societal challenge that we have. We, you know, we live in this society that tells us go big or go home. You know, everything has to be huge and enormously successful in order to matter. And this is really, this is really pushing back against that. This is really about saying, no, it doesn't have to be huge in order to matter. And yes, in the macro, you want to do the most good that you can with the resources you have. But then in the micro, you get to do the most good with one human being to another human being. And I don't really think you have to choose between those two things. I think you can let your heart lead you in that circumstance and say, what does my heart feel like the right thing to do is here today? And if you don't overthink it, you'll come up with an answer. You know, (laughs) it's just like, you know, we spend so much time trying to be sure we're doing the right thing or talking ourselves out of something. And it's like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Just follow your heart do that thing, and then keep moving with your day. Don't make it a big production. Everything doesn't have to be huge to matter, not at all. And that is really pushing against our culture. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, right. Because our culture very much prizes what the head has to say. And just yesterday in in a call with a coach, I was kind of throwing out a, a little bit of a dilemma and you know I was very upset because rather than just tell me what to do she asked me well what does your heart feel what does your heart say what does your gut say and I'm like well my heart and my gut no but my head's saying this and she's like hmm okay interesting right and it's like really we have undervalued the wisdom of you know our heart our intuition whatever you want to yeah. call it And I think that's a part of sort of repairing our wounded culture. I agree. I mean, because honestly, you know, to go back to that moment in Savannah with the man on that really hot day, I was just listening to my heart. It was like that the, the article I'd read had touched my heart and I was listening to my heart that day because I could have easily just ignored him. That's what often happens. And I was like, no, that's not what I'm going to do today. And I'm so glad that I listened to that impulse because it really nurtured me. Mm -hmm. And it continues to nurture me whenever I think about it. There's this feeling inside of, yeah, that was a moment of human connection that really mattered. And those connection moments matter so much and we're so disconnected from them at 
especially now, you know, we, we do so much stuff online and so little stuff face to face that we're missing a, a nurturance that comes from engaging with others directly rather than through a screen. Mm hmm. So speaking of disconnection, the last thing that I would love to ask you about is in the book, you there's a section where you describe the value of working with others who might be quite different from you might even hold different values and beliefs. But there might be times where those people actually have the same or similar shared goal, maybe for different reasons, but the value and working across that divide. And I was just the relief and and just like hope that I felt in reading that was huge because, as you know, it's almost like including in sort of activist culture, I feel like sometimes there's this like part of what we're afraid to do wrong is like, oh, well, I can't associate with those people. I can't, mm, I need to just condemn, condemn, condemn. And, and then that leaves no opportunity for this. So I'd love to just hear anything else you want to say about that. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of the purity test. I, I'm just not. I feel like we are complicated individuals and we come at things from so many different perspectives. And, you know, we can share values that we express really differently. And we can also, I mean, there aren't that many things that humans want when you come right down to it. How we want to get them is infinite, but the basic needs are just relatively few, and they are common. So to me, the idea of demonizing people because they have a different point of view is counterproductive to the larger goal of living together on this planet in something that resembles harmony rather than chaos. So if you have someone who is on the other side of the political spectrum from you, but they share a concern about the environment and it might be for reasons that are completely different than yours. I mean, maybe your reasons are based in your faith and maybe their reasons are based in science. What difference does it make? You share this concern, find ways to work together towards a common goal. You have a common goal. So why would you let that you come at it from different points of view be the thing that gets in the way? And I think we've gotten into these silos where we feel like the people we work with have to agree with us on pretty much everything, or we're not going to be able to engage with them. And I think that we can engage with people who don't agree with us on everything. I, I had a conversation once where the woman I was speaking to had worked on something. She is a progressive, down the line progressive, worked on a on a piece of legislation legislation with Newt Gingrich of all people. Hmm. Wow. And it was so stunning. But they both wanted the same thing. They were both looking to reduce the prison population mm -hmm. for very different reasons. She was coming at it from the point of view of how unfair prisons are and our legal system is really skewed and, and disadvantages people of color. And, and Gingrich was coming at it from the perspective of 
being a person of faith and believing in redemption. Okay, fine. That's fine. I really am fine with both of those reasons. And they were able to come together and get a piece of legislation passed that got 30,000 people out of prison. Mm. I mean, those are the most unlikely bedfellows you could ever (laughs) imagine, but it worked. Mm. And I think that that was such an important lesson for me to hear her say that in that large a context, but it's the same thing in a small context. It doesn't have to be that you agree on everything. If there is a shared goal, find your way to be able to work towards that. And then maybe find out that you don't have as many differences as you think you do. Mm. And just entertain it as a possibility that maybe there are more things you feel the same about than there are things you disagree on. And also, you shouldn't agree with everybody in your circle on everything because that's not a community that's a cult Ooh, drop the mic (laughs) yes oh agreed well before we hear more about what you're up to and where people can find you the last thing i want to just say about the book for folks to to know is that it's just so beautifully structured there's not an ounce of fluff in there like it's I I never know how long a book is when I read it on my Kindle, but it felt like exactly as long as it needed to be, like easy to get through, very practical. And you have also these beautiful micro activist sections where you can see people doing all kinds of incredible work all around the world. So I just can't recommend it enough for folks. And tell us what you're up to, where they can find you and the book and the podcast, if you're recording more episodes, all the things. So the book is available from any bookseller. You can go to your favorite bookseller and order the book if they don't have it in stock. And I would love for people to do that because my mission is to really expand the reach of microactivism and to get more people into the work because there are so many challenges that are facing the world right now. If everyone did one thing on the regular, we would live in a really different world. Mm. And so that's my mission. It's like, okay, 8 billion people. How many have I reached so far? <laughs> you <know? laughs> yes. yes. Um, you know, talk about one of those goals you're not going to live to see the end of. <laughs> but that's okay. So that's my main focus right now. I, I am, there's my podcast, Stepping Into Truth. And I know you're going to give everybody the information about that. And I, I'm actually starting to do a lot of public speaking. So some of it is public, some of it is private. When it's public, I put it on my website uh, for people who are in the area to come and listen. I really am enjoying having the opportunity to speak to college students right now, because I mean, they're the next line of defense for so Mm -hmm. many things. So Anytime I can hear their concerns and help inspire them to keep doing the work that they're doing, I'm really happy to do that. And people can just visit my website, omkariwilliams.com, and keep up with me there. Fantastic. Well, this has been such a joy. i am got my postcards in the other room. I'm ready to take my, ne- my next micro action. And thank you so much for the gifts that you're sharing with the world. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Valerie. 
Yes, friend, you made it to the end of the episode. I so appreciate you tuning in. And if you enjoyed this episode, make my day by subscribing and leaving a five-star rating to help other people find this podcast. I'd love for you to connect with me on Instagram at honoryourspark. And don't forget to sign up for my four-episode private podcast series all about kicking self-criticism to the curb at honoryourspark.com slash enough. See you in the next episode.